0: Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own
1: work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Oil prices stabilized. I would say. Um, I, I think they're about as likely to go down as up. An important piece of information that the Saudi Aramco's second quarter report was very good. Uh, they, of course, don't hedge, so they got the full benefit of oil pricing. They did say they were going to increase their CapEx a bit, and uh, they would try to work towards having 13 million barrels a day of capacity up from 12. I don't think, I mean, they produced it around eight and a half or nine I don't think anyone in the oil world thinks they have 12 million barrels a day of capacity. That's kind of a PR number. Uh, But they are spending more money. I think they're the only large oil entity in the world, with possible exception of Rosneft and Lukoil, the two big Russian oil producers, who's actually increasing their budget. Everyone else is is going down. Uh, The reason I think there's as much down as up is, uh, is the variant, uh, China is definitely, uh, they're not in a lockdown, but I mean, they're definitely, um, uh, moving towards, uh, you know, reducing activity, uh, having, uh, <clears throat> reducing travel, uh, doing the various things to try to cope with the variant. Other Asian countries, uh, ditto. So, I mean, I think near-term demand going to be impacted by the variant. As a lot of you know, there's this theory out there that the Delta variant is so contagious that it'll all be over with in a couple of months. Uh, That seems to have been the experience they had in India. And uh, some of the the people or experts in this area predict that's what will happen here, but we'll see. Um, I think longer term... uh, uh, to the extent you own oil producers uh now, uh I know some of you own Magnolia, uh <clears throat> some may own Diamondback, uh, uh some of them own Concho got merged into ConocoPhillips. I think you want to hang on to them. I I think that the uh <clears throat> take up of uh uh electric vehicles, battery powered cars is gonna be slower. There's a great article in the paper this morning about BMW's struggles trying to do EVs. Their initial car, which they've sold uh, 200,000 of, which I think was, you know, over the whole time it's been out, pretty disappointing. I mean, the initial range on the car was like 80 miles. Uh, They're coming out with a better car now, but this is not an easy transition to make to get range for the EVs. And then it's completely unclear uh, how much of us, uh, you know, if we're a slice of the U.S. car buying market, how many of us are going to buy EVs uh, rather than stick with our old cars uh, and uh, or new gas fired or diesel powered? So uh, <clears throat> government entities can, uh, you know, say that, you know, all cars are, you know, half of the cars in the U.S. are going to be EVs by uh, by uh <clears throat> 2030. And that's great and maybe, uh, is a good political stance for them to take, but who knows? You know, I think it's going to be more market driven. The very interesting thing is you look at the second quarter interim reports for oil and gas companies, and I'll come to gas in a second, uh, really restrained capital spending. Um, uh, the mantra that <laughs> I use is, is pretty widely been taken up, which is, uh, don't spend more than two-thirds of your cash flow and try to get 10% production growth. Now, that is an impossibly high target to reach. Um, <clears throat> I should have mentioned when I t- talked about Ocum, I should have mentioned EOG. EOG in their uh, interim, in their second quarter interim, uh, the com- the incoming CEO uh, said that on their double premium inventory, they they talk about upgrading their locations to be double premium, they say that they uh get at least, I think, a thirty percent return at forty dollar oil. They say at sixty dollar oil, the wells pay out in six months. Uh, you know, it's just remarkable. I mean that's the way to do it with shale wells because they have no they don't have a whole like a lot of life after payout. What you hope to do is get a quick payout and still have two thirds of your reserves left. And that's the only way you can do that to spending two thirds of cash flow and increase your production. So uh, EOG is the leader of the pack. Uh, you know, I think Pioneer has a great base. Diamondback is awfully well managed. Magnolia is kind of a much smaller company, but one to look at. I do think as Exxon, Shell, uh, BP, all these larger companies, everyone say, but Saudi Aramco and, and Rosneft and Mukal, uh, uh, curtail their spending on oil to the extent that demand does not go down as quickly as, <clears throat> As, uh, you know, the adherents of battery powered cars would like to think, uh, there's going to be a shortage. And the interesting thing about a shortage is that you cannot fix a shortage of oil quickly. Uh, there's just so much lead time. So, you know, I'm, I, I, please don't go out and buy long oil or make investments based on this. But I mean, you could get some rather spectacular <clears throat> increases in oil. And in fact, the Biden administration, uh, sent two guys out this morning, their national security advisor and the head of the uh, domestic economic council to, uh, Hector for lower gasoline prices, uh, and, uh, and saying that OPEC plus, uh, needed to do more. In other words, produce more in order to help the global recovery. Clearly they're spooked by, uh, inflation numbers. Uh, especially as they try to usher through this very large spending bill through, uh, through the Senate and through Congress. Um, the, uh, uh, on natural gas prices, uh, they're really strong. Uh, LNG prices unexpectedly for the summer, uh, LNG prices are likely to be higher in the winter in Europe and in, uh, in, uh, in Japan, Korea, China, uh, what was called North Asia or what's calls JKM index. Um, you know, they should be higher in the winter. They're now at winter levels now, uh, really quite remarkable. And I think what it shows is, um, uh, all countries everywhere are trying to do more wind, solar, nuke, whatnot, some things other than fossil fuels. And I think there's a bit of a shortage, um, especially when you get very warm temperatures um in the summer. So you have a double peak. In other words, it gets uh you have peak uh power demand in the winter because it's cold and and you using gas for space heating, and I think you have another another peak in, in the summer in the northern latitudes where uh where you know your power demand uh the 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 stretch, in other words, the extra power. Uh, comes from, uh, natural gas or imported LNG. Uh, same thing happening in this country. Um, uh, gas is trading, current gas is trading over $4. There's a lot of backwardation. So when you get out a couple of years, you're back down to 280 or 290 or just under $3. But, uh, this is a, um, um, this will, um, carry, I think. Uh, for example, winter prices. Uh, futures prices. If you're a Boston resident, uh, your utility, if you need gas in January, is paying $12. Uh, That utility will be buying gas in the Marcellus for $7. The difference between $7 and $5 results from in the winter when there's high demand. There isn't enough pipe capacity from Pennsylvania up to Massachusetts. So you get this big gap, uh, the $5 gap. Uh, I Think that um, that 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 may not hold. I mean, that's that's a bunch of uh, futures buyers uh, looking at the current uh, fill up of storage and looking at uh, uh, weather experts' prediction on on what the weather is going to be in January in the Northeast. But but it is it does show some considerable potential upside. Uh, the only gas companies. That you can buy, uh, really, are are uh, are uh, the Marcellus companies. I mean, there aren't really other gas companies. The one Haynesville company, Vine, was part of an announcement this morning emerging with uh, Chesapeake, which went through bankruptcy and doesn't have any debt. Worthwhile reading the press release if you want to see how committed capital market participants are, or how. To satisfy capital market uh, commitments, how the management has to present their strategy, and that is, uh, free cash flow. In other words, capex way less than, uh, uh, way less than, uh, uh, cash flow. And, uh, and then distributing a fair chunk of that cash flow out as dividends. And, uh, as that, as that prevails in the capital markets, uh, and of course you're, you know, Exxon has engine number one with a proxy fight and they get, you know, they, they, they lose the fight and give up three board seats. Uh, BP and Shell are under enormous pressure being, uh, EC companies, uh, to, you know, to give up fossil fuels. So you're not going to see the investment out of the public, you know, EQT, Entero, Range, Southwestern, CNX, the public Marcellus companies. So I, I, I think it's reasonable to, Think that our overall gas production here, despite very high LNG demand, is probably going to trend down, just because the other basins, you know, the Marcellus Utica is like a third of the 90 b's a day of gas are produced, but the other basins are declining, and the the uh, the uh, gas that is produced with oil uh uh which comes largely from the Marcellus is pretty flat because oil production uh excuse me from the Permian oil production in the Permian is uh, pretty flat. Once again the Pioneers, diamondback, COGs and whatnot are not overspending their cash flow. So um could guess before the Marcellus, before uh you know the Marcellus is basically technology. Uh horizontal drilling in, in this very tight formation to get it to give up gas. Eight years ago, production from the Marcellus was zero. And now it's a third of our production, or roughly thirty one or two out of ninety B's. Before the Marcellus, gas would generally trade at about ten percent of the price of oil. So when oil was sixty, gas would be six dollars. I'm not predicting it's gonna go back there, but it dropped so because the ratio we were using was uh 15 to 1, which is, uh, you know, 6%. And uh, clearly, that's too low now. Uh, could it get all the way back to a $60 oil market? $60 gas? I don't think so. But might you get a stabilized price of 450 or something in gas? Um, maybe. Now, an important component of gas demand is power. And power, uh, there's going to be more and more wind and solar. Uh, the Microsoft's world will contract with a uh, solar farm or with a uh, wind and, and, uh, and so there will be more wind and more solar. And of course those, and it, those sources of power operate no matter what is because, um, their incremental, their variable cost is you know, very low. Uh, but, but I do think, I do think that we are in a situation where the trend in gas is up. And uh, so to the extent you own any of those uh, gas producers, uh, I'm not sure I would add, but I certainly would hang in there. And with that, um, uh, I've used up more than my half of the uh, 30 minutes. So we're going to swing over to uh, Mike. And uh, uh, and we're, we, we talked about biotech last week. We're going to talk about something else this week. Uh, Mike and I, Spoke for 10 minutes early this morning. And, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, since everything's kind of elevated, we want, and we want everyone we know, like all the people on the phone, to focus on things that, that, that are reasonably priced, that where you can commit, uh, uh, new capital now. And we're thinking biotech. Well, biotech is difficult. And of course, the big story that, the people that produce the uh, vaccines, that that horse is kind of out of the barn, whether it's Moderna or the one over in Germany, BioNTech. The the um, however, we have another place to look for look for value, and uh, and what our focus here is on IPOs, but not not IPOs that are aspirational or just you know an idea. We're talking an IPO that probably doesn't need to go public for capital it has already gotten to the point where it has cash flow and a balance sheet and whatnot. And case in point in, in my investing experience, although I didn't find it when it was brand new, is Fastenal. When Fastenal came public, it, it, it already had cash flow 30 years ago. If you invested, if you bought 1,000 shares of Fastenal at $9 and, and, and invested $9,000, you now have over $5 million of value and dividends received. And Mike's gone and done some research on a similar result uh, for Google. So now I'll uh, I'll turn it over to Mike.
0: Yeah, so this was actually kind of fun to do. I I didn't only do it for Google. I did it for a bunch of companies. And if we want to pull up any one, I can very quickly do the calculations, but I'll explain how I did the calculation. So, so this makes sense. I looked at the price of the IPO and then I looked at the price three months out and just took an average of that price. So fast and all actually um, on a split adjusted basis, when it IPO was six cents a share. So obviously it's split quite a few times since then. Um, And it's price three months out after the IPO wasn't, wasn't much different than that. Um, So not counting the dividends your 10,000 uh, would be worth $8.7 million. And then counting the dividend dividends, assuming they're reinvested, that's $12 million. Um, and that is a difference of, you know, 22% return, not counting the dividends uh, as far as an IRR goes to 23% counting the dividends reinvested. So, uh, I thought that was interesting on two points. Uh, one, that's kind of your power of your dividends, and um, and and two, obviously the the IRR of twenty three percent or so uh, compounded over time. Uh, it may not seem like a huge number in one year, but over if you're able to do that over time, it, it's really impressive. Um, Google, if you did ten thousand dollars seventeen years ago when they did the IP at, uh, IPO, uh, that ten grand would be worth. 400 grand. Um, So they are also doing, they're doing about 24% IRR over that period.
1: It's interesting. It, it, you know, one of the ways to think about investing, whether you're in, you know, you have another profession and you're doing the investing to with extra money that you've been able to save or, uh, uh, or whether you're, you know, professional investor or you're, you're, you've in effect, in effect, a professional investor by just being good at, you know, in an investing career, let's say of 40 years, let's say your health stays good and you operate for 40 years, in, in my case uh, knock on wood, it's like 50 years, you know, you don't need more than four or five of those things to really pile up a lot of net worth, and uh, so the question is how to identify them and um, in this Environment sitting here in uh, the middle of August 2021 with, uh, you know, very easy money. Um, the fed still buying 120 billion of, uh, of, uh, securities a month. Presumably they'll taper sometime in the next couple of months and, and start to, uh, start to, uh, start to reduce, you know, not have their balance sheet increase as quite, quite as quickly as it has. You know, a good question is, uh, you know, what is, what is my money worth? You know, as I go to, you know, buy gasoline or a quart of milk or whatnot, you know, how much depreciation of my currency, uh, 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 should I figure on? Uh, and, uh, cause that $10,000 in, in, uh, in Fastenol or uh, 30 years ago or, or Google, uh, 30 years ago, obviously, is, uh, you know, is, 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 uh, could buy more uh, 30 years ago or 17 years ago than $10,000 can now. So how do, you, how do you not only pile up net worth, but how do you beat the depreciation uh, of the currency? And I believe down to my toes that if you are investing in something new that may happen or may not happen, you cannot have a concentrated portfolio um you would have to you know have 10 or 15 things and if two or three work that that would that would carry the rest however if you have a company as it comes public as it first becomes available that is generating free cash flow has a balance sheet but does have that growth potential i think that can be part of a a concentrated portfolio uh one of the stocks I own five below which I did not find on the public offering. And so uh, after, you know, it was already up, uh, you know, two, two and a half times by the time I found it, you know, lots of people think with IPOs, hey, it's not really available to the average person. And that is true. That is true. On the other hand, there are very few IPOs who don't sometime in the 12 months thereafter trade below the IPO price. Now, five below happens to be one. It never traded below the IPO price, but that is very unusual. I think Google did. I think maybe Fastenal did. So one of the things that Mike and I have kind of dedicated ourselves to based on the 10-minute conversation this morning is uh, focus more in on where this worked because, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world to copy. And secondly, there's lots of IPOs uh, being... uh being, uh, uh, undertaken. And, uh, you know, I, I, I get kind of time constrained. Mike has a little more time. One of the things we're going to, we're, we're not giving up on biotech. We will spend time on, on, on biotech. But one of the things we're going to spend time on is looking through the slew of IPO, um, uh, that have been done in the last year because some, May have traded down and, and, and the ones that are uh, underway and look for that good balance sheet, uh, 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 with free cash flow. In other words, generating more cash flow than it's using, but also with the potential to substantially expand. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, uh you know, I, I, I guess partly because you know, biotech is something I've never invested in. I mean, I, I've always inv- avoided healthcare because I figured we're spending, you know, like 18, 19% of the GMP on healthcare. No one else in the world spends more than 10% sooner or later, we would have to start to spend less. And, you know, as the tide goes out, all the boats go down to take a nautical term. But, uh, And, and so I'm not saying not focus on biotech because clearly some remarkable things have happened, like the virus, uh, uh, like the, uh, like the vaccines. Uh, however, I do think I personally am more comfortable in doing this review of recently IPO companies and ones that are uh, underway and trying to identify the ones that did not need to go public to raise money, went public because the owners the management decided that they had more future in trading as a public company than in selling out. And uh, um, and I think we can be kind of agnostic about what areas they're in, as long as we are comfortable with the balance sheet and the cash flow and are comfortable that they have something that will give them market share. Because after all, an economy... It, once we have the recovery from the, uh, from the virus, is only likely to grow 2 or 3% a year. The only way you can grow 10 or 15% a year is to take market share. So we're going to have to focus on the good balance sheet, the good cash flow statement, and the ability to take market share. And, uh, and you know, it sounds simple. You know, it sounds like, you know, why, why weren't we doing that 10 years ago? And to a certain extent, we were. I mean, NVIDIA being a good case in point, and Mike's going to give you an update on NVIDIA, but Nvidia's has always had a good balance sheet. I mean, there's a good article in The Economist this week on NVIDIA. I mean, they do take, they do do things that are not without risk, but they do it out of a very strong balance sheet and uh, and cash flow statement. And so that, you know, now is NVIDIA, NVIDIA is very expensive now. I mean, is would you commit new money to NVIDIA? With that, I'll turn it over to Mike, but, but, you know, NVIDIA, you know, we talked about Fastlane. we talked about Google. NVIDIA is a case in point. I mean, they do not take financial risks. They are going to be able to pay their bills. They always have cash. They don't have debt. By the way, they, for the, you know, as soon as they begin to catch on, they start paying a dividend. And with that, without, uh, you know, having used up so much of the 30 minutes, they am going to let Mike finish with uh, an update on NVIDIA.
0: Sure. So, well, let's start with You know, had you invested 10 grand at the IPO that is almost, let's see, a little over 22 years ago, um, that would be about $5 million today, 5.5 if you count uh, the dividends. I, I, you know, the valuation is definitely stretched, but like Hunt said, we're, we're more interested in companies that have the ability to continue to grow over the long term the trouble and the thing that we're going to run into when we, and maybe we need to bucket some of these IPO companies in, into, into what we, our opinions of them based on like I said, whether they need to IPO because they're passing the bag from one investor to the next and whoever ends up at the end is the greater fool. Cause we had one of those last week that um, I was watching. We'll discuss another day um, or a company like NVIDIA, like, like Hunt said, that was managing their balance sheet well. They went public during um, a time that was frothy in the public markets because it was opportunistic for them, um, and they had early employees that needed some liquidity for those vested stock options. Um, Facebook would be another one that might fall under that, where they've done they didn't need to IPO, but they uh, they got to a point where their size really required them to get there. And all these companies, um, at least the good ones, you talk about NVIDIA, they're north of a 30% IRR over that period. Facebook is 29%. So it's uh, there are some fantastic businesses. And I, maybe we just make this much simpler um, and bucket them into, you know is this a company that needs IPO versus uh, uh, one that doesn't? So, anyways, back to Nvidia. I, I think the valuation is, is expensive here. I don't I don't feel like you're getting a, a screaming deal now. Once you know the the, the arm acquisition closes, um, I, I think that's a nice to have as far as a pathway for their future growth. I don't think it's a need to have. Um, that being said, the space that Nvidia is in, they're the clear leader. They have a target on their back. They're going to see more competition over the next decade or so. Uh, the question is, are they able to maintain it? Um, I think they are. I think the moat that they've developed is really in the software, not, not necessarily the hardware. And that software lead will stick with them for a very long time, so long as they're able to continue to develop that, which they
1: are spending heavily on. So um, so I still feel, feel good about Nvidia. Good. We, we, we've come to the end of the 30 minutes. A number of you will send in emails to Diane saying, what about this company or that company? But let's focus over the next few weeks on companies that have come public recently that have strong, we look to have strong balance sheets or cash flow statements. I mean, we're talking it just in the past 12 or 18 months, we're probably talking about a universe of a couple hundred companies. Uh, uh, it, you know, there are only so many hours in the day, uh, for uh, Mike and myself, any guidance we get on, uh, you know, here's one to look at uh we'll definitely put kind of a priority on that and uh and uh mike and i will start spending more than uh 10 minutes every wednesday morning uh uh getting uh ready for the call because uh i do think this is um the one of the ways to cope with a uh pretty uh uh, uh high valuation in current stocks is find the one that um you know that 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 can uh go up 10 15 20 times over uh over 10 years and uh as i say in an investing career whether you do it you know as an adjunct to your other activity or you do it full time doesn't take more than four or five of these things to really uh most people will find you know when they when they count up what they're worth they're going to find like 80% of what they're worth is from like four or five investments it's just the way investing works and i think to the extent that we can focus in on candidates for that that still fit into a concentrated portfolio so you don't have to invest in 20 things to come up with two or three really outstanding ones uh i think that makes all kinds of sense and with that you know especially with uh, uh the delta variant getting uh getting more prevalent uh, uh be safe and keep healthy i, I uh, just, just anecdotal advice from some of our management teams. I mean, I talked to one of the guys running one of our Yorktown companies. Actually, runs two of our Yorktown companies. One third of the key people in the company uh, have been diagnosed uh, with COVID, and this is despite every one of them being uh, double vaccinated. So, um, uh, I was kidding him. I was, I was, I was kidding him. I said. Maybe everyone's just decided that they'd like to be on quarantine for the rest of August and he just laughed. But, uh, I, I do think it's a good time for everyone to, uh, you know, just, just be cautious. And, uh, of course, in my case, I think the best place to, uh, be with other people is out on a sailboat. And I think Mike agrees as long as there's 10 knots of wind coming over the, uh, coming over the, the, uh, the deck, uh, you know, I think uh, I think that's one of the best possible places to be. But with that, everyone, take care. We'll be on next Wednesday. Bye bye.
0: Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.